0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Psalm 15. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. This is the word of the Lord. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your word that when we open it, Father, it is truth. And because of this, Father, we ask you, would you give us a hunger and thirst for the word of God that we read it each day? Would you forgive us for despising this word except on Sunday morning? And would you please make us people whose worship you accept and whose dwelling you allow us to enter? Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. O O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have a psalm of David. It doesn't say to the choir director, and it doesn't mention the musical instruments, but it doesn't mean that it's not made to be sung. We just don't have any notations that are musical here, but we do see that it's written by David, as so many, if not most, of the psalms are. It begins with... it being clear who's being spoken to by the use of upper caps, large caps, capital letters, Lord. And that always indicates in the Old Testament that this is Yahweh. This is the personal name for God. And uh, sometimes it's translated Jehovah, sometimes it's translated Yahweh. Um, The convention is that all through the Old Testament, in the New American Standard Bible, which we use, it means Yahweh, and it's, it's uh, translated with all caps, Lord. Um, this is the name for the personal God who has revealed himself to Israel. So this is Israel's God. So David is speaking about the God who has shown himself by gathering a people and making them his. Now, we would be tempted at that point because we, some of us have taken comparative religion classes to think that this uh, is the Jewish God or the Christian God, but that it's not the Indian God, it's not the Pakistani God, it's not the African God, it's not the South American, it's not the Asian God. But remember what Scripture says is this is the only God. This is the only God that exists. This is the God that's being spoken of at the beginning of Genesis when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is not your God if you're Asian and another God This is the only true God, and the Bible says all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heaven and the earth. Now that is the God that's being spoken of here. A psalm of David, O Lord, and then in verse um, 4, who fear the Lord. And this is the God who exists. And we don't say that because we're tribalistic. You know, sophisticated pastors and people who talk for a living like to use words like tribalistic to refer to the sort of nationalistic, uh, smug, self-satisfied habits we all have of thinking that what we're doing is right and what everybody else is doing is wrong. And so when we say this is the only true God, it's because we like to tell people we worship the only true God. But check it out. I mean, do you really enjoy... I mean, have you found an occasion this last week to tell the people that you know who don't serve God that you serve the only true God and that their God is an idol? I mean, how many of us have found occasion this last week to be smug and tell people that? Well, okay, one person. I mean, it's not t- something we're tempted to do today, right? What we want to do is just take anybody's spiritual inclinations and... Sprinkle holy water on him and say good going. Now, now let me show you how to perfect that, right? There's only one God. And if we could have it another way, we would. We would love to have it that all roads lead to heaven. But God has said now. He said all the gods of the nations are idols. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, speaking of eating meat, sacrificed idols, refers to these other gods as demons and is worshiping them as demon worship. In other words, it's in Satan's interest to teach us that there's a multiplicity of gods and that it doesn't matter which god you serve. Okay? O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hills? So, The psalm begins with two questions. The first question is, who may abide in your tent? The second, who may dwell in your holy hill? Um, There's not much difference in abide and dwell. They both basically mean uh, to, to live in the presence of the Lord. There is a difference between tent and holy hill. You know that Israel worshiped God in a tabernacle. If you go to the King James Version, it says tabernacle instead of tent. So when Israel was in a transitional period of its life they worshipped in a tent because that's what everybody lived in. And so it's fitting that God would dwell in a similar dwelling to what the people were using that could be taken down and put up easily, right? You can't do that with, you know, the concrete that's going to be put out here. But then the holy hill, the Mount Zion, uh, this is the permanent place of God's abode. It can refer to heaven also. And so the psalm begins with two questions, O Lord, Yahweh, the only true God, here's my question for you. Who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? We read these questions and we want to get on to the answer. But let's stop and look at the question. The question assumes that we should be asking whether God will receive our worship. The question is, Lord, who can come into your temple and give you offerings? Lord, who can participate in your sacraments? Lord, who can sing your praises? Lord, who can pray? That's what's being asked. Who can worship you? Now, this is, again, very contrary to the way we think today, because... our inclination is to say that anybody that has a slightly spiritual leanings ought to be encouraged. And what we should say to them is, if you come to Christ, he'll never cast you out. Come to Jesus. I was listening to a a country sort of gospel recording on the way in this morning. And, um, you know, the recording was all about um, receiving Jesus and, and, and and. and asking Jesus to come into our heart, right? And that's really what we're doing when we pray. We're always on some level asking God to help us, to dwell in us, to heal us, to forgive us. We're asking for intimacy with God in prayer. That's what prayer is. But when we don't pray, why don't we pray? Well, the reason we don't pray is because we know that we can't dwell with him and we can't abide with him. Why? Well, it's because the things that are spoken of here are not true of us. In other words, God is, is, is much like our families' fellowship in the church. When there is sin, sin divides. Right at the very beginning when Adam sins, he loses his intimacy with God. He can no longer dwell in the presence of God. God says, Adam, where are you? Adam's hiding. Adam's hiding his his private parts. Why? Well, because now he has knowledge of the alienation and filth between him and God, and he can't abide the presence of the Lord. Okay? And so we have to recognize that uh, it is appropriate to ask these questions. Who... Or, may I abide in your tent? May I dwell in your holy hill? That's really what's being asked. In John seven thirty-seven, we read that on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so Jesus says, come to him and drink. And that should be our message to the sinners of this world. Come to Jesus and drink. And then in John 6, a few verses earlier, Jesus says that the one who comes to him, he will certainly, he says, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And we're in the habit of speaking this way to unbelievers. Come to Jesus, he'll never cast you out. But listen to the verses surrounding Jesus' statement. He says, John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. So the first actor is not the person, but it's God. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In other words, God gave you, to Jesus, and so you came to Jesus, and when you came, Jesus didn't cast you out. And so it is appropriate for us to say, come to Jesus. When we say it, we know that unless the Holy Spirit works, they won't come. But then you think about yourself, and you think, I did not choose him, he chose me. I mean, it's just the most obvious thing in the world. Who could ever imagine you or me coming to Jesus. It's just ludicrous. And so every time you find yourself seeing people who need Jesus, they're in bondage with with sin. And they're hopeless cases, right? And you just can't even comprehend them coming to the preaching of God's Word. It's incomprehensible. But then you just have to stop and think, you're here! And that's really incomprehensible. Really, anybody else coming to God is much more understandable than you coming to God. Okay? And so that's what unites us. (laughs) right? We're the most weird, weird group of people. There's no affinity group that would draw us together. We don't all bowl. We don't all bowl with two fingers on our right hand. We don't all like to line dance, right? We don't all like lavender, And so what pulls us together is that God chose us. And what, as Alex was teaching us last week in Sunday school, what a wonderful thing to be chosen by God. It just takes all the pressure off. I did not choose you, but you chose me. And so having been chosen by God, we came to Jesus. And Jesus would not cast us out because his father had done the choosing. Now, doesn't that mean that those who have come to Jesus should not be scrutinized? Doesn't that mean that if we're here today under the preaching of the word, that that's all we need? That we just flounce and sashay into the presence of the Lord, knowing he'll receive it, just like a little child, toddler, reaching hands up and saying, Daddy, Mommy, right? That's how we come to Jesus. Well, yes, there's truth to that. But listen, you come to the table, and you've just gotten done eating a popsicle out on the deck. What does your mother do? She says, you go into the bathroom and you wash your hands before you come to the table. And so there's a sense in which the only one that can come to Jesus is the one who is dirty. Because if you think you're clean, you're without hope. But there's also a sense in which when you realize you're dirty, you must cleanse yourself, right? In other words, the fact that God is in the business of forgiving sins doesn't mean that we're in the business of making nothing of our sins and not cleaning ourselves up. And so what God is saying here to us through this psalm, is that the people who he is delighted to be worshipped by are those who are clean. And you say, well, wait a second. I went to him because I was dirty. I see I'm still dirty. Every time I read the Bible, I see I'm dirty. Every time I pray, I see. Every time you preach, I see I'm dirty. And now you're telling me that I have to be clean if God's going to accept my worship. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. About you, about me. If you are to worship God, you are to be holy. He commands you to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. How can you be a part of the family of God without having the family likeness? And you say, well, no, that's the whole point of adoption is you can look completely different. You can look like Josiah in a family of whites. I say, no, 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 I'm not talking about your race. I'm not talking about your skin color. I'm not talking about whether you're male and female. I'm not talking about whether you're slave or free. I'm not talking about whether you're blue-collar or white-collar. That stuff is inconsequential. I'm talking about you have the image of Jesus Christ written on you. And you say, well, how can I? I'm a sinner. Jesus was perfect. And I say, do you grieve for your sins? Yeah, there you have the family likeness. Yeah, but it just feels like torture and torment and self-defeat. They say, there you have the family likeness. Yeah, but it's so awful. I'm the chief of sinners. There you have the family likeness. Yeah, but God's holy and I'm a sinner of unclean lips. I can't abide in his temple. You have the family likeness. Well then, would you shut up about this stuff about clean hands and pure hearts and not lending it interest? I say, well, both and. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. You know, the whole point of Christianity is for you to feel hopeless and therefore joyful. Do you understand this? You're supposed to despair of yourself you remember what the thief on the cross said as he's dying next to Jesus and the other guy's making fun of Jesus? The thief says, we're here for what we deserve. Remember that? What a beautiful statement. Every one of us deserves death. Death is not a surprise to any of us. And neither is the reason for our death a surprise to us. We all know that we're men and women that are corrupt. And so we deserve death, and God's going to give it to us, but Christ has had victory over death. We go through the valley of the shadow of death, and we never say that we don't deserve it. That's unbelieving pagans who say they don't deserve sickness, they don't deserve pain, they don't deserve to have people betray them. It's pagans who say that. Every time this happens to us, we might want to get the details right. You know? We want to explain to them that what they think we did, we actually didn't do. We did something much worse. But that's faith. That's faith. That's living by faith. And so, yes, it's good for us to come to God. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I did not choose you, but you chose me. And then, having said that, to hear the command of God, you must be holy, for your heavenly Father is holy. And you say, yes, sir. And then he says, you want to know who I will accept Their worship, you want to know? We say, yes, Lord, who may abide and and who may dwell on Mount Zion? He says, okay, here's who it is, okay? The person that I will accept, the person who I will allow to dwell on Mount Zion is he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Where's Jim? There's Jim. Jim, stand up and show us that line and tell us what it is in the military. Would you please? Yeah. Come on up and stand up here and describe it because you're such a wonderful demonstration of it this morning. He's tucking in his shirt right now. <laughs> okay. All right, now show everybody and say, say what it is called your gig line, and it's where the seam of your shirt and the seam of the fly, your pants, and the edge of your belt buckle all line up and make a straight line. How about if you have a cover on, what then? Does that have nothing to do with it? Well, if you're a Marine, you stand funny so that they all line up together. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, you keep it parallel to the ground. That's what it means when it says, he who walks with integrity. The man and woman whose worship is accepted by God is the man or woman who walks with integrity. He's straight. It's all lined up. There's not one thing going on here and another thing going on there and another thing going on here. There's not one thing going on here and another thing going on here. It's all of a fabric. Do you know that when somebody has their favorite word, authentic, do you know that they have no integrity? If you hear somebody talking about authenticity, you can absolutely count on the fact that they have no integrity and there's nothing authentic about them. (laughs) You know? Why? Well, because the person that has integrity doesn't ever talk about having integrity. Right? The one that his worship God accepts is he walks with integrity. There's no internal duplicity, deception, lies. He is a man who is lined up and straight. And what you see is what you get. And, of course, because that's how he is in and in, then that's what he speaks and that's what he does. He works righteousness and he speaks truth in his heart. He speaks truth in his heart. We had an elder here once, and this elder, everything that he told you was a secret, and you were not to tell anybody else his secrets. And he was made an elder, and he came to his first elders' meeting, and as typically happens in an elders' meeting, there was... I would call it an argument, but I think all of you are going to be scandalized. But I think that's what causes the best decisions, is a good argument. As long as when the decision's made, everybody's unified, and that's pretty much what happens in our elders' board, right? So we had a good argument, you know. In the middle of the argument, one of my jobs as a moderator is to keep people fighting fair, right? And so in the middle of the argument... I looked at him and I said, let's call him John. I said, John, no, 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 you're better than that. That's all I said. You're better than that. Well, the next morning I got this long email about how what you said implied that I was lying. And if I'm a liar, I shouldn't be an elder, and I should resign. And so what he was saying to me is, you should never have said to me you're better than that, right? Right? It's like, dude, get off your high horse. Listen, that man lied constantly. Constantly he lied, and that's what I wrote him back. I said, you lie all the time. I lie all the time. Every elder lies all the time. And you... Now you've heard they argue, and now you hear they're all liars, and you're all prepared to just throw them out of office, you know. Do you have any idea how deceptive you are? Honestly, look at the way you talk to people. You're always fudging the truth when you talk to people. You're always leading them to believe things that aren't true, even though what you said is, strictly speaking, true. Dro- You're committing to doing things you know doggone well you're not going to do. You're implying that you'll show up when you know that you probably won't because you probably can't, but you want to sort of leverage everything in such a way that you get the benefit of implying you'll show up without having to actually show up. You act as if people are friends that you can't stand. I mean, that's what happens every time you go into Walmart. Oh, come on, laugh. You know this is who you are. You lie. Speaks truth in his heart. But as we become conformed to the image of God through the painful process of sanctification, and here, when we come to church and we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so what begins to happen as we get older is we become weirder. And the reason we become weirder is that holiness is weird. And we begin to have a greater tolerance for our weirdness out in public. It starts with our wife, and we see that she doesn't divorce us. And then it moves to our children, and we see they still love us. And then it moves to the brothers and sisters in Christ at church, and we see that they still receive us. In fact, probably receive us a lot better. And then it goes into the world because we know that it's a badge of honor to be persecuted because the world just does nothing but lie, and we just take a tiny little step of telling the truth. You know, we actually say, no, I'm not sick. I, I, I'm taking time off because my daughter had her dog killed, and so we need popsicles and roller coasters, and so, and so it's really vacation. It's not a sick day. <laughs> you know, and they go, what are you t-? You know, I was, I was going to go to UW-Madison, and so I had them evaluate my transcript. And they sent me this note, and the note said, um, Tim, Well, it wasn't a note, it was... They said, Tim, you get credit for two years of Spanish, and you only need one more year of languages. If there's anything I hate, it's languages, although I do hate statistics more. And so I took languages so I wouldn't have to take statistics, but I hate languages. And so I looked at it and I said, I can't have two years of languages because... I repeated year one in high school. Now, I passed it, but I knew that I needed to do it again. And so I went into the admissions office, and I said, you know, I I don't actually have two years of languages. I only have one. I repeated the first year of Spanish in high school. And the admissions counselor looked at me, and she said, well, why are you telling me that? I said, well, because you made a mistake. She said, why are you telling me that? And I got it. I got it. I had fulfilled my obligations, (laughs) you know, and she decided that she was going to let me, so then I took Greek. It was awful. But I only had to take one year of it. It Listen, listen, it happens all the time to, uh, with us that uh, there's an error in our benefit and we can pass, go, and collect 200. And listen, people. We are the people who are honest. And because of that, society is built on us. Do you understand that? We tell the truth. We tell the truth. Okay? You are a liar. You are a liar. And we tell the truth. Because... In God, there are no lies, and he is our Father. Okay? He walks with integrity, he works righteousness, and he speaks. you see? The gig line is, is on, and it's straight. What is in here, what's in here, comes out of here, and he works righteousness. This is the one that God accepts. Then verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue. Now, we all know what slander is. Slander is saying something that's not true. In the ministry, you regularly get threatened with a lawsuit for slander. I don't know if you know that, but it's true. And I remember the first time that I got threatened, I called an attorney. I don't know if it was Brian or who it was. I called the attorney. I said, what am I going to do? What am I going to get in? I'm going to And there was just a very simple statement at the other end of the phone, and the statement was truth. What would the statement be? I don't remember truth well, that, that's not what was said. It wasn't just "is a defense. It was like an ironclad or truth is an absolute or something. But the point was, nobody can, nobody. If you can prove the truth of what you said, nobody can take you to court for slander. They can take you to court, but they're going to lose. Because slander trades on lies. You slander somebody, you're lying about them. Okay, and so it says... He does not slander with his tongue. And it makes sense, right? But watch. It goes on and it says, nor does evil to his neighbor. Now, when it's in the con- sandwiched in between, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. We're dealing with sins of the tongue here, right? And so in the middle, he doesn't do evil to a neighbor. Who's a neighbor? Well, a neighbor is anybody that you have commerce with, and I don't mean just money. Somebody that you are, they're your child, they're your aunt, they're your uncle, they're your next door neighbor, somebody that gives you gas, somebody that cuts your hair, somebody that works on your teeth, somebody that re-roofs, somebody that cuts your grass, on and on and on. These are all neighbors, right? And it says that he does no evil to his neighbor. Now, how do you do evil to a neighbor if you're not slandering them? You know, isn't it true that if it's truth and it's an absolute defense in the court of law against the charge of slander, all you have to do is be speaking the truth, right? And it can just be the most nasty truths in the world, but if it's true, who can say anything to you? And that's how we live. Generally, we don't slander people, right? Because we're, we're good Christians. And so what we really do is we just harm our neighbors. We repeat the peace of truth about the neighbor that will cause the neighbor to look bad and thus for us to look good. Now, I know you don't do that. But I do. And I would prefer not to have to preach this verse. Because this is my sin. You know, two things happened yesterday or day before yesterday and yesterday. One is, I repeated something to David Wegner in the hearing of other people that I should never have talked about. But the other thing's even worse. So I'm doing plumbing, and I go into Menards to have help with my plumbing. And there's this young dude, and he helps me, and he helps me, and he helps me, and he helps me. And after about ten minutes, he's pulling his hair out. And so he goes and gets the old codger, who really knows what he's doing. And that guy comes over, and I think absolutely 15 minutes at at a minimum. And they're going through every brass fitting that there is, trying to put together a system that's going to work for what I need it to work for. And we get to the very end, and we find that we need two of a particular part, particular sizes, but they only have one there. And the guy actually says to me, well, I don't want to say this, but go over to Lowe's. And (laughs) And so we have it on the floor. There are three men down on their knees in the middle of the aisle. And it's, And then he says to me, take out your smartphone and take a picture of this. And he puts everything together so I know how, how it's going to have to go together. Now, if you know me, you can probably guess what's coming, which is that about seven or eight years ago, When we were building our house, I was in there, and and I got very upset with this man. And I complained about him. And so the whole time he's helping me, I'm sitting there thinking, look at this man. He's just unbelievably beautiful. And the more he helps me with this other guy, the more I come under conviction that I'm a man who has harmed my neighbor. And so finally we get done, we stand up, and of course you know what I did. I said, thank you, and he said, oh yeah, no problem, and I said, listen, and the other guy was standing, I wanted the other guy to hear this, I said, listen, I said, a number of years ago I was in here and I complained about you. Well, do you think that man wanted to hear that? He didn't want to hear it at all, and I sensed immediately that he just wanted me to shut my mouth and get out of there. It was obvious he didn't remember it, and here he had been congratulating himself on what a wonderful job he was doing for me. And now I was saying, you know, I complained against you. And it's like negative karma. (laughs) But then I saw his face change because I was very distinct in saying, would you please forgive me? Would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? Okay? So I would ask you to pray for me about my mouth. (laughs) You know me. And if you love me, you know that's where you need to pray for me most. So pray for me about my mouth, okay? And I'm not going to make any comments about you. Listen, a lot of you have problems with your tongue, right? And so when you pray for me, apologize to your wife, to your children. No, don't apologize. Ask their forgiveness. Put it in the category of offense against God. That's where it belongs. Those of you who live together, keep very short accounts of harming your loved ones. You do it all the time. One of the things I do is I make jokes about my wife that hurt her. And, you know, when I do it, almost never do I want to hurt her. Uh, It's this perverse East Coast thing. It's kind of how you show your affection, but Mary Lee's very uptight about it, and she's not uptight about it because I'm hurting her. You know why she's uptight about it? She's uptight about it, this is true, because of what it does to my reputation with the people I'm talking to. Isn't that something? If that isn't a wonderful wife, I don't know what is. She's just not thinking about herself. She's thinking about how I look to other people. And she wants me to look better. Not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Do you remember the proverb that says this? It says, Proverbs 10, 12, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. You know, it'll help maybe for you to think of how Noah's sons backed into the tent and dropped the blanket on their father. Remember that? That's what we should do with the offenses of our loved ones. We shouldn't go around stirring them all the time and revealing them because it stirs up division. Okay? nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Then verse 4, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. Now this is very interesting because what we've just been doing is saying don't focus on the failures, don't focus on the faults, don't lie about them, be positive. But that's not what's being said. What's being said is control your tongue, control my tongue. But this doesn't turn you into an idiot. Right? Monkey, see no evil, hear no evil. A Pollyanna, you know what a Pollyanna is? You must cultivate the ability to make judgments. You must make judgments and then shut your mouth. Unless the evil that will come from you shutting your mouth is worse than the evil of your speaking. Does this make sense? In other words, there are times where for you to shut your mouth about the evil is more evil than for you to speak about it. But don't make any mistake that this means that the best person is the person that goes through life blithely refusing to see what is as plain as the nose on the end of his face. This is not an endorsement of Christian naivety. It's utterly disgusting. Christians are supposed to be the ones that see those who suffer in this world. Christians are the ones that are supposed to know that's a baby being killed in Planned Parenthood. Christians are supposed to know that that one up on the cross is the Son of God and he's righteous. Christians are to be wise. Christians are to have discernment. Why do I know that? Well, because it says right here, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. Now, how on earth can you be so righteous as to despise a reprobate if you don't know who's a reprobate? And you say, well, what's a reprobate anyhow? And I say, well, just take a guess at it and I think you'll get it right. Well, I'm not going to judge God says, judge not lest you be judged. I say, yeah, he does say that. But right after that, he says, don't throw your pearls to a pig. And I guess you have to know who's a pig to not throw your pearls to him. And it comes right after Jesus saying, judge not lest you be judged. Come on, don't be weaselly. All of us want to avoid seeing evil unless it hurts us. Okay? And if the only time you use your discernment is when you want to protect yourself, I say shame on you. It's given for the glory of God, not for your self protection. You must show not only that you are abstaining from evil yourself, but that you hate those who do it, you despise them. And you go, well, that doesn't sound real spiritual. I say, come on, everybody in the world is despising people. In fact, that's all the world is. That's all Fox News is. And the only thing that separates us is which side we despise. So here's an idea. Instead of despising Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians, let's despise the reprobate. And you say, well, what's the reprobate? And I say, well, take a guess about it. You'll probably be pretty close. No, no, really, what's reprobate? Okay, here's the word, vile, the vile man. You're to despise the vile man. Well, I don't know what vile is. Uh, ask the guys, your buddies you work with, they know what vile is. Huh? Huh? <laughs> don't do sin with your mouth and despise the vile man. Not this or, both and. You say, well, that's hard. <laughs> I say, yeah, it is hard. I, as a pastor, am to do good with my tongue and no evil, and I do evil. You, as a daughter of Jesus Christ, are to see the vile You are to make judgments against the vile that are so personal to you that you despise the vile. This is who can worship God. In whose eyes a reprobate, a vile man is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. So you're to walk around and your whole life is supposed to, be constituted by your whole life is supposed to be made up by judging those who are vile and judging those who are Christians judging those who are reprobate and judging those who are members of First Baptist Church judging those who are despicable and morally reprehensible and judging those who are baptized and take the Lord's Supper. I mean you see Do you see? I'm lying. It doesn't say anything about baptism of the Lord's Supper here. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) What it says is those who fear God. You know, and about this time, you're all wondering, well, why, why do you get mad all of a sudden? I'm just so tired of churches and pastors and elders who think our job is to remove the fear of God from the people of God. If you want to speak about someone being godly, here's how you say it. He fears God. You don't say he believes in God's sovereignty. Actually, today, I'm of the opinion that maybe the best way to say a man doesn't fear God is to, for that man to go around talking about God's sovereignty. I'm so sick of it. No fear of God in the Reformed Church today. None. As if that's what John Calvin believed. As if that's what Peter and Paul believed. We are to tremble at the Holy God. And so here you have, on the one hand, you're to despise the reprobate, the vile man. And on the other hand, you are to honor the one who fears God. And you know something, in the Reformed Church today, when we run across a guy that fears God, you know what we do? We mock him and scorn him. We talk about him being down in the gutter in pastoral care. We talk about him being, you know, moralistic. We talk about him you know, being a Pharisee, we talk about him not understanding grace. Listen, I don't want any pastor, any elder, any Titus II woman, any child in this church coming into worship who does not fear God. If you fear God, I don't care how awful your failures are we're one. Do you understand that? That's what unites us in the godly fear and love embrace. Do you see this? And so the opposite is not you know, the reprobate and then those who've been baptized, the reprobate, those who take the Lord's Supper and look to their baptism, the reprobate and those who understand the providence and sovereignty of God, the reprobate and those who believe in grace and sanctification by grace and, and lawn mowing by grace and cooking by grace and, and just graceful grace. The vile and those who fear God. Okay? It is right for you to fear God. If you want to love God, fear him. If you want to love your daddy, fear him. If you want to be a father like God, teach your children to fear you. If you want to be a good wife, teach your children to fear your husband. And then it says, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. And <laughs> uh, You know, I really would have liked to have skipped over this psalm. Because, you know, what is fatherhood? Well, let me say this. What is grandfatherhood except remembering a fatherhood of not keeping my word? You know, just all the things that you said you were going to do. I got one that's been at the front of my mind for two years now. And I I keep trying to figure out how to do it to keep my commitment. (laughs) Listen, we keep our commitment. When we give our word, we keep it. To love and to cherish till death us do part. We keep our word. Verse 5, He does not put out his money at interest. And because we're out of time, I'm going to skip that one. Nor does he take a bride against the innocent. Well, of course I'm not going to skip that one, right? I mean, nobody laughed. What I think we ought to do is I think we ought to vote off the island. I know it's a large island, but I think we should vote off the island, the entire state of Delaware. Delaware. Why Delaware? Because that's where all the credit cards are based. (laughs) But the problem is, my sister-in-law and her husband live in Wilmington, so I guess we'll keep Wilmington, but then we've got all the credit card companies, and so what are we going to do? The whole world is built on credit. If you go to the King James Version, or if you go to the New International Version, you know how they translate this? They don't say... um, he does not put out his money at interest. What they actually say is that he doesn't, uh, I forget exactly how it says, but they don't use the word interest, but they use the word usury. Now, this is where Bible translations lie. Not the King James Version, because everybody knew what usury was at the time of the King James Version. But when the NIV uses usury, that's lying. Why? Well, because which one of us feels guilty about usury? Usury is interest, which is sinful. (laughs) You know, we all know that. And which of us has any temptation to commit usury? But what about interest? Now... The words be behind this, this statement about lending interest are Hebrew words that are translated in a number of places like this. Genesis 49, 17. Dan, speaking of the tribe, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. Bites. That's the origin of this word usury. It is handling money in such a way that it bites people. Now you begin to understand. Charging interest bites people, right? That's why all the financial counselors tell you not to allow anybody to what? To bite you. And the way you avoid that is you don't go into debt because debt involves allowing somebody to bite you. And so, for instance, in Amos 5.19, As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Same word. Now, another one, Micah 3, five. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, when they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Now, why do we translate it having to do with money? Well, listen to some more uses of the same construction. In Habakkuk 2.7 will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken indeed you will become plunder for them so there we see the financial part of this exodus 22:25 if you lend money to my people to the poor among you you are not to act as a creditor to him you shall not bite him interest but what it says is you shall not charge him interest Deuteronomy 23.19, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen. Interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. Now, what is it saying when it tells us not to charge interest? Or that God will receive the worship of a man Who does not charge interest? What does it mean? Well, it probably means a man who doesn't charge interest. But what we speak of as interest today is not quite what they're speaking of as interest because there is a negative uh, meaning attached to it that's tantamount to biting. Okay, now it's very obvious to all of us here in pristine white land. Okay, right that. This condemns payday loan offices. I mean, we're far enough. I don't think there's any in Bloomington. Are there any in Bloomington? There are, really? Huh, where? Where? Huh. Huh. Okay, but not many, right? Oh, there are many? Okay. Okay. But it's not Alabama. So in other words, down south, where there are lots of blacks, those blacks are taken advantage of by financial corporations that charge them exorbitant interest on short-term loans. That's evil. The man that makes his money by working in one of those places, or the woman, or the people that own them, are the vile. Now, I know it's hard for us to see any financial dealings as being vile because what we believe in is laissez-faire capitalism, which means no judgments ever for anything and hands off by the government, right? But I mean, honestly, you really think that's what Scripture teaches? You really think Scripture says get what you can as quick as you can? You really think Scripture tells you that whatever you can get away with is what is right, might is right? It can't be what Jesus would be like. It can't be the Father who allows his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. It can't be the, fa- the family likeness of God for us to charge for an item on Craigslist, whatever we can get. I mean, really? Whatever the market will sustain, that's the level of judgments we make as Christians? So you're going to tell me that if you were on a desert island and you and the person next to you were starving and he had a pile of money next to him and you had the last piece of food, that it would be perfectly moral for you to sell that food for him, not just for the money he has on the island, but everything he has back home? All it is is a banana. And he's going to pay you $3 million for your banana. And somehow you know you won't die. And that's moral, that's family likeness, that's like God. So we say, okay, all right, no, that's not right, but what about 8%? I say, well, do you know any investment right now that you can consistently get 8% right now? Well, no, but it's a startup, and it's high risk, and and risk and reward should be together. I say, okay, all right. Does it make any difference that it's a new blood test that works quickly and can be sent to Africa? Well, no, it's just an investment. In other words, the minute you're making an investment, you can charge whatever you want. Listen, every decision you make... Every single decision you make either honors or dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ. And the minute you go into the financial realm, it doesn't take the gloves off and allow you to do whatever's in your best interest. You have to live remembering that it says that God will allow into his presence the man who doesn't charge interest. You have to remember that. And you have to make your financial decisions on that basis. You say, well, then are you saying that there's never any interest allowed, so I can't take interest from a bank because they're taking interest from somebody else? I say, no, that's not what I'm saying. Would you characterize getting, what is it, a quarter percent now? Would you characterize that as biting somebody? No, hardly. Well, there you go. See, that's interest. And I'm saying, you know, when I preach the word of God, it's amazing how we can all turn into idiots. Use the brain God's given you. Use it. Make judgments. Be able to separate between financial shenanigans and financial kindnesses. And always make sure that your decisions are in the direction of kindnesses. God is no man's debtor. If you are lending to the poor, guess what? God says he's your debtor. And what can you hope for more than God is your debtor? You say, well, people are poor because they don't make good decisions, and I'm rich because I make decisions that are good, good choices. And I say, good. God needed somebody that made good financial decisions in this world. Now help the person that God didn't give that gift to. And you know that I'm just paraphrasing Jonathan Edwards. This stuff is old. What gives you the right to be rich because you make good decisions when your brother or sister sitting next to you doesn't have the gift of making good decisions and is poor? And it's your money because God happened to bless? You you remember what Luther says about this, don't you? Luther says, "My God often blesses with riches those gross asses whom he blesses with nothing else. one of my favorites. Luther was always quite earthy, (laughs) you know. Here's what Calvin says about this. I'd commend to you his commentary on this. He says, let us then remember that all bargains in which the one party unrighteously strives to make gain by the loss of the other party, whatever name may be given to them, are here condemned. And so, yes, God gave you a brain to think. You are to make judgments about your own financial transactions. You're not to take advantage of people. You are not to loan your money out on interest, especially to other believers. But, personally, I don't believe that loaning your money out at a rate that's close to the inflation rate is loaning it at interest. Can we just say that? It just seems so evident. If your money's going to be worth less when they give it back to you than it is, you should ask them to give it back to you at the same level that they gave it to you at least. And if they want to allow you to participate in their venture by giving you a little bit of profit like they'll have it, that's fine. But if you miss one payment on your credit card, your interest rate goes up to 24%, that's usury. That's condemnable. That's damnable. All right. I want to read to you uh, a quote of Calvin. Calvin says this, he's quoting an old uh, guy, and he says, Cato, of old, justly placed, in other words, this guy was right in putting right next to each other, usury and murder. And he says, they both are the same kind of criminality for the object of this class of people is to suck the blood of other men both a murderer and a usurer, suck out your blood. Okay? Then he says this, it's also a very strange and shameful thing that while all other men obtain the means of their subsistence with much toil, while husbandmen, okay, farmers, shepherds, while husbandmen fatigue themselves by their daily occupations, and artisans serve the community by the sweat of their brow, and merchants not only employ themselves in labors but also expose themselves to many inconveniences and dangers, you know, up on the roof, right? That money men should sit at their ease without doing anything and receive tribute from the labor of all other people. And listen, this is a theme in all the Godway that comment on this text. How many times the elders and the pastors of this church say to you men who work, God bless you for working. I mean, I had no idea when I had daughters how much I was going to desire men who worked when they got ready to marry. I remember when uh, one of the men in this church Lost some job and he began to deliver pizzas years and years ago. And I never loved that man as much as I did when I heard he was delivering pizzas. And I'll give you a secret you know who I despise? I mean, not really, but yeah, I do. I can't stand men who won't work with their hands. Can't stand them. There is dignity in labor. There's dignity. God made us to work. God made us to sweat. God made us to get bruises and to be tired. I don't think there are many gifts that are as good as being tired. You all with me? Listen, you want to keep your kids from being financial shenanigan people? The way to do it is to teach them to work now. 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 And to have no tolerance for any complaints about work. All right? And then we come to the end, which is this verse, verse 5. He does not put out his innocence, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. He doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. Okay, so this is an election year, and all politics in America is, all it is, is taking bribes and promising bribes. That's all it is. And the only thing that differs in America is which kind of bribe you want. That's it. If if you're a libertarian, you want a bribe saying that you'll never have any authority over you. And that's all libertarianism is. You know, they'll act as if it's principled. It's not principled. It's just hatred of authority. And if you're a Democrat, you want to be bribed. And the sine qua non of the Democratic Party is actually not public welfare the sine qua non the absolutely irreducible thing without which you will not have democratic party politics is abortion that's what it is you will be able to kill your unborn children and so you vote democratic all right and if you're a republican you want god to be honored you want a christian vice president Uh, A born-again Christian... Sorry, I better be careful. (laughs) What a joke! Utter joke! What is the Republican Party? The Republican Party is the payday loan companies. Except it's corporate and big enough that none of us have any personal condemnation of it because it's banks too big to fail. All the tiny investors all over the country lose the money, but not the banks too big to fail. I mean, come on. Republican politics is just a different form of a bribery than Democratic pro- And we can say, well, you know, the Democrats are bloody. And I say, look, all the Republicans are the ones that are paying for the abortions in the abortuary. All the Republicans are the ones that have managed to have us go how many years now without ever repealing abortion? <laughs> Come on. Republicans are just as disgusting as Democrats. It's just that we can feel righteous because the party platform you know what Joe Sobrin said? He said, if voting did anything, it would be illegal. <laughs> now listen, I'm probably going to vote, I will never vote Libertarian. Never. I don't think. <laughs> And I'd rather die than vote Democratic. But I actually did think about voting for Hillary Clinton instead of Donald Trump. I actually did think about it. Because I thought to myself, you know, she might protect the rule of law more than this populist does. Now, I know I've won so many points with all of you this morning, right? (laughs) You know what Samuel Johnson said? He said, "Why sir, all schemes of political improvement are laughable things." And that's my view on politics. I just can't get it why why Christians are talking about it. It's all a joke. It's all a morality play. And if you watch Fox News, you really are a dingbat. <laughs> I mean, those people couldn't give a rip, but they put on a good show. If you watch it long enough, you'll see it is a show. Right? It's good entertainment. You know, all this posturing. (sniffs) Then they go back into the green room and have some scotch. The ones that were just yelling at each other on television. Go out and have drinks. They're even married together. Mary Matlin and what's the other dude's name? Carville, Jim, Jim Carville. Remember him? The Democratic operative and the Republican operative. They're married. And they say, that makes for an interesting marriage. And I go, no, it makes for a completely boring one. They don't care. That's why they're married, right? You can't be married to somebody who isn't a Christian unless you don't care, right? So listen, bribery is the center of American politics None of you should be looking to your public leaders for bribery. If you listen to what we pray, when we pray for those in authority over us, what we pray is that they will fear God, that they will honor his word, and that they will make decisions that are just and merciful. And it's especially important that they do that when we're the ones that stand to lose by it. Right? Right? So forget politics. You're going to have to vote. I pity you. I'm hoping to be out of the country at that time. <laughs> it's, a, it's a horrible thing that seems to be approaching us, isn't it? <laughs> okay, all right. He who does these things will never be shaken. Look, if our conscience is clear before God, it doesn't matter what we vote it doesn't matter what our wife or husband or our children think of what we vote. It does not matter what they judge our motives to be. If our conscience is clear before God, we can't be moved. And have you ever noticed that about yourself? Have you ever noticed that the more you fear God, the more truthful you are, the more integrated, gig line, right? The more you belong to God, the less you're afraid. Have you noticed that? The are as fearless as lions. And you won't be moved. Why? Because you're, you're built on the rock of Jesus Christ and his word. All right? So this is the one whose worship is received by God. And the truth is, this is the one that we love and that we embrace as a brother and sister in Christ. We're not defending ourselves with each other. We're not backbiting each other. We're not fearful of each other because we're all under the cross. And so we're not moved. When we have sins confessed to us, we're not moved. When we confess our sins, we're not moved. We're not finding out something new. And so listen, every Sunday, you must come to worship because in worship we can again be reminded that God is holy and we are not, but that we are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All of us. There's not one person here that doesn't need it. But covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're as bold as lions. And you know, people trust us. People love us. Because we're not making pretenses. We're not going around flattering people. Our yea is yea. Our nay is nay. And dads, this week we do the things we promised our children. Okay, dads? Not me, but you. Let's pray. That's a joke, by the way. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have promised that such a man will not be moved and his wife will not be moved either. We pray that you will fill this church with those who are truthful, gentle, merciful, who hate the vile and to honor those who fear God. We love you, Father. Please receive our worship now as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.